You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Welcome to Understanding Disordered Eating, Episode 1. Today we sit down with Dina Cohen, a certified eating disorder registered dietitian and supervisor. She is a nutrition therapist who specializes in the treatment of eating disorders, chronic dieting, women's health, and pediatric nutrition. Dina is the founder of Eat Well Soon, a nutrition counseling practice in Lakewood, New Jersey. She is dedicated to helping individuals and families develop lifelong healthy habits and a positive relationship with food. Dina is passionate about eating disorder prevention, and her recent projects include providing workshops and developing resources for educators, medical professionals, and mental health providers. And now for my conversation with Dina. Maybe because this is the first episode, why don't we take a second just to define what we mean when we say eating disorder, because we use it a lot. Um, So just to make sure that we're all on the same page. Yes, absolutely. So the way I think about eating disorders is that it's when food and feelings get mixed up to the degree that it causes somebody an intense level of suffering. Now, everybody has feelings and everybody eats food. So of course they're going to get mixed up sometimes. I remember before one of my first interviews, I remember having an upset stomach and feeling like I didn't want to eat anything. And that's very, very common, very normal. I wouldn't consider that an eating disorder, even though your food and feelings are getting mixed up. Or if somebody has a loved one who leaves town or maybe after a breakup, maybe they'll overdo it on chocolate or ice cream. And that's food and feelings getting mixed up, but that's just kind of like a blip in normal life. With an eating disorder, food and feelings get so mixed up that it causes the person a lot of distress. It has a very negative effect on the person's physical and mental health. And basically, basically it becomes something that consumes the person's life. And it's very much categorized by anxiety. In any eating disorder, there's going to be a very high level of anxiety. Um, Did I eat too much today? Did I gain weight? Even if I ate okay today, what's going to be tomorrow? Am I going to have trouble in, um, you know, whatever social situation because I won't have the foods that I need? There's a lot of rumination with, with, with each specific eating disorder. The anxiety might look a little different, but there definitely is a very high level of anxiety. And so what happens is that food, which is supposed to be a very peaceful, natural, joyful part of life becomes this huge stress. And it becomes something that controls the person rather than the other way around. So even though eating disorders can seem a little bit more innocuous than some other mental illnesses, because I mean, it's just food, right? It's just worrying about your body. Who doesn't worry about their body? Worrying about your body is so common nowadays that we even have a term for it. It's called normative discontent, which means it's like kind of normal to not like your body, which don't get me wrong. It's not healthy. It's not good, but it's, it's yeah, that just, sounds kind of sad. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just because something's normal doesn't make it okay, but it is kind of normalized because it's so common, but with an eating disorder, I think it's important to recognize that even though it looks like it on the outside, it can look like it's something that's not such a big deal because it's food. It really is a mental illness. 
So the more formal definition would be that an eating disorder is a mental illness that's characterized by a severe disturbance to a person's eating behavior. Yeah, I love your definition because it doesn't go into the specifics of what each diagnosis is broken down into. And we often fall into these kind of like potholes of, oh, but it doesn't meet all the criteria. And so it's not a disorder. Um, But really what it is, is about the distress that it causes and how much it interferes with someone's functioning. So I really love that definition. Just because I use these terms interchangeably, could you maybe talk a little bit to the difference between what disordered eating and an eating disorder is, if, if there is anything to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, To me, I really see it as a spectrum where where you have a healthy relationship with food on one end, and then you have a severe eating disorder on the other end, and then everybody kind of falls somewhere along that spectrum. So when somebody has disordered eating, their their eating is messed up and their relationship with food is messed up, but they, they might be able to sort of kind of chug along, whereas someone with an eating disorder, their entire life is taken up by it. And one of the reasons why that is, is because most eating disorders do have a a strong degree of worries about the person's body, where they're not happy with their body. They feel like they need to fix their body and they need to do that using food. There, There are a couple of eating disorders that might not fit that criteria such as ARFID, which is really the best way to think about it is is extreme, extreme picky eating where the person's functioning is really disturbed by it. Like they can't, they feel really stressed about going to social events because what will they eat there? They're limited to a very narrow variety of foods that feel safe. So that's really more about the anxiety about the food rather than somebody's body. But most of the other eating disorders do to carry a high level of distress about the body. And that's like a portable anxiety. Wherever you go, you go, your body's there with you. So it can really be something that just, it's like a monster that takes over your life. So with an eating disorder, that, that really consumes the person entirely. Whereas with disordered eating, they, they can still have a very high level of distress about eating and, and, and weight and shape concerns. But the, the, the severity is not as high. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean that somebody with disordered eating shouldn't get treatment. They absolutely should because it can still be something that really messes with your life. But, you know, to answer your question just in a sentence, it's the, it's the level of severity. I don't think there is such a difference in what's going on underneath, but rather it's, it's the level of severity and how it manifests. Yeah. And it's really important to differentiate the two, but also not important at all, because like you're saying, it's, it's, important that everyone seek treatment if they're struggling. And this kind of plays into the idea of, you know, a lot of people worrying that they're not sick enough and then they just push off going to treatment, which is a a big problem. Yeah. And disordered eating can easily become a full-blown eating disorder. It's just, you know, it's a step along the way. Uh, So one of your things, you have many things, but one of your things is prevention. You do a lot of talks with clinicians and teachers at schools and writing and all the things. And by addressing how to prevent eating disorders, you talk about all the things that may cause eating disorders and how to avoid them, which in essence is highlighting a lot of the layers underneath the development and maintenance of an eating disorder, which is exactly what we talk about on this show. So I think it would be helpful to talk about the causes of an eating disorder for a little bit. Um, As clinicians, we use the biopsychosocial model, which basically means that eating disorders don't occur in a vacuum. They're the perfect storm of biological, psychological, social social triggers. Um, But if that was gibberish to some people, can you expand on that for a little bit and, you know, maybe to help us understand, give an example of what you mean 
Yeah, sure. So biopsychosocial refers to the fact that an eating disorder originates from a number of sources. So bio means the person's biology. Some people are wired to be naturally more anxious, perfectionistic, type A. Other people are wired to be more chilled. We don't get to choose anyone who um, grew up in a family with um, a couple of siblings realizes that, no, we don't all come out of the womb exactly the same. We each have our, our own unique smattering of genetics that contribute to our personality. And so some people are just going to be wired to be at greater risk for developing an eating disorder. And there isn't really anything we can do about that. The psycho part means the way that the person's thought patterns look. Now, because of life circumstances, people can develop core beliefs and ideas about things that, that really impact how they interact with the world. So somebody with healthier thought patterns is going to be less likely to develop an eating disorder, whereas somebody with less healthy thought patterns that developed because of, it, it could be a big trauma, it could be little t traumas, it could just be the dynamics in the household. Somebody with less healthy thought patterns is going to be more at risk for an eating disorder. And then the social part refers to the person's social environment. How much pressure is there in their social environment? What are their friends talking about all the time? What do they see in the media? And all of those things can also contribute to somebody's eating disorder risk. Now, the tricky part about a biopsychosocial disease is that, you know, it, it's not as simple as like you either catch it like you catch a cold or you don't catch it. It's a lot more complicated than that. But the beautiful part is that we do have more room for prevention because even if we can't change the person's biology, we can help them develop healthier thought patterns and we can help mitigate the risks in their social environment. Just as an illustration, we can take a common example that I see is let's say you have a child or a teen who does have that more rigid perfectionistic personality. Let's say they grow up in a family where let's say the parents are either unavailable much of the time, like physically not present a lot of the time, or maybe emotionally unavailable. And maybe this child has a best friend or a relative who loses a bunch of weight and gets a lot of compliments. And then this child wakes up one morning and says to herself, you know, I don't look as thin as that cousin of mine. And maybe if I lost some weight, then I would be a little more impressive. And maybe my parents would take more notice of me. And maybe she does go and lose some weight and then gets a lot of compliments. And that's very much reinforced by the social environment. And then something that started as a project that was within her control, you know, the body improvement project, just kind of latches onto that rigid perfectionistic brain. And now she can't escape from those rules that she created for herself. And now her self-worth is all tied up in her ability to follow her diet and keep losing weight. And then you have something that totally took over. And now, even if she wants it to, she can't stop because how can you stop doing something that your self-worth and safety are all tied up in? And then boom, you have an eating disorder. Now, if you had someone with a different biology, maybe more impulsive nature, then maybe that person would binge one day and then feel really guilty because she's afraid of weight gain and then purge. And then maybe you'd have something that would turn into bulimia. 
or maybe you would have someone with a trauma history who suffers from a lot of distressing thoughts related to the trauma, who sees her friend purge one day and decides to do the same thing and then realizes that purging really brings her a sense of relief. And so does binging because it helps her numb out from her feelings. And then you have something that can turn into bulimia as well. So it's a very complex mix of the bio, the psycho, and the social all together. But like I said, it does afford us the opportunity to sort of claw our way in to to the person's social environment or to, to how we help people with their thought patterns. And then, you know, the same things that can contribute to the eating disorder allow us a window into prevention. Yeah. And definitely less complicated if you address it before all of this happens. Because eating disorders are very, very difficult to treat. You know, as you can see in the example that I gave, when somebody's in it, it's a lot harder to pull them out. And therefore, even if we can't change a person's biology again, which is okay, because every personality type definitely has its own blessings too. Like we don't want to go around changing everybody's biology, but if we can help with the thought patterns and if we can help create an environment where there is less pressure and body diversity is just something that we take for granted rather than it being this shocking new idea. Yeah, I could see how that would definitely be helpful. I forget who it is, but I once heard a talk by somebody fantastic where um, he gave this image of a very, very large piano with many, many keys. And he said, you can have this tremendous piano that takes up the whole room, but if you never press any of the keys, it's never going to make a sound. And that's what it's like when somebody has a genetic vulnerability to an eating disorder. If you place them in a safer social environment, then even if they have that genetic risk, it's it's never going to come out because they were never triggered. Yeah. And it also, you know, it's, this is completely anecdotal, but it's a pretty, pretty small percentage of the pie, the biological piece. Well, I, I also find that, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a mixed bag because maybe if you tell somebody that their biology places them more at risk, then maybe they can, if there is, you know, shame related to the eating disorder, maybe that can mitigate some of the shame. But I, I also feel like fo- focusing a lot on the biology it can also lead to more hopelessness. So it's like, well, I'm wired this way. What do you want me to do about it? I'm never going to recover. But if you focus on the other parts, I feel like it gives somebody more hope and freedom to feel like, yes, this is my biology, but I can totally work with it. And I can have a very happy, productive and healthy life in spite of my biology, because I do have more control over my thought patterns. I can choose, um, you know, whose Instagram to follow. I can hang with the people who are more positive and healthy. And I I feel like it just, it can give people more ownership of the recovery process when you focus more on the other bits. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. In prevention, we have to address as much of this as we can. Obviously that's what you do all the time. Um, And what we try to do before the people come through our doors. What I love about your approach is a lot of redefining some of the concepts that a lot of people take for granted, but they're definition of a lot of concepts are actually inaccurate, which is part of the problem. But something that I hear a lot, I mean, people talk about healthy weight, let's get to a healthy weight. And usually what they mean is I want to lose weight. So first of all, what is a healthy weight if it's not losing weight? A healthy weight is the weight that you're at when you are living a healthy lifestyle in the absence of a medical condition that might be affecting your weight. 
So I don't want to skip over the medical piece. There are definitely things that can be going on with somebody that can either suppress their weight or make them gain more weight than is naturally healthy for their body. But in the absence of any of those medical conditions, when you are living a healthy lifestyle, mentally and physically, then the weight that your body naturally settles at, that is your healthy weight. And I think a big thing that people need to understand is that that does not look like one body size, just like we each have different shoe sizes. And maybe it's not always convenient to have a really tiny foot or a really large foot because it's harder to find shoes. It's not something that people feel personally responsible for. It's just the way they came down onto this earth, same with height and same with natural healthy weight range. So it's not one number on a scale. It's going to be within a range of numbers that's healthy for you. And it's also something that changes across the lifespan. So when somebody reaches a healthy adult weight, that doesn't mean that that's the weight that they're supposed to be stuck at for the rest of their life. You know, over the decades, weight does shift and change and that's okay. But it's important to recognize that your healthy weight is a consequence of a healthy lifestyle. It's not its own thing. It's not its own goal. Also, when people talk about healthy weight, a lot of times they are, you know, thinking that that's the, the lowest weight that they can be at and still survive. Yes. You know, in, in the early days of eating disorder treatment, and even when I started working, this was something that was talked about a lot. You know, when you're, when you're treating a client with an eating disorder, you got to tell them, I'm not going to make you fat. I'm going to help you reach the lowest weight that you can be at and still be healthy, your healthy minimum weight. And I understand why they did this. If somebody has a lot of anxiety about gaining weight, they want to be reassured. It's like, no, we're going to let you get by like with just the bare minimum. But now thinking about it, that plays right into fat phobia. It's like, no, we're not going to let you gain an ounce more than you absolutely need to because being fat is really a bad thing. And it's not something that we want to happen. So really, in a way, the treatment provider would be fighting with the patient and really legitimizing the fear of weight gain. Now, we we don't want to make anybody gain extra weight, just like we don't want anybody to be, be lower than the weight that they're supposed to be. We, we really just want to help people live a healthy lifestyle and whatever weight they end up at, that's the weight that they're supposed to be. So we don't want to aim too low. We don't want to aim too high. We just want to see the weight as a consequence of a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. So you're talking mostly about neutrality of it all, that we're not so focused on it. It just happens because the rest of the lifestyle is healthy, but we're not, it, it doesn't, almost doesn't matter. Not that it doesn't matter, but almost, you know what I mean? And it matters as, as an indicator of a healthy lifestyle, but not, not as its own goal, just like we would want somebody's vital signs to be within a healthy range. And that would be an indicator that things are going okay. Weight's the same thing. It's, it's just another vital sign. It's like, do you take your temperature every morning when you wake up? No. If you're feeling okay, things are good. Same with weight. You don't need to check. Yeah. So what if, uh, you know, this happens very often with parents of, of kids who are either under or overweight, but it can happen in adulthood too. If someone is, let's just say, quote, over, under healthy body weight, what could possibly be going on? And this is mostly because we don't want people to jump to putting them on a restrictive diet right away. Yeah. So we, we need to look at the weight as a symptom. If something is wonky in somebody's weight, 
there can be a lot of things that can be going on. Medically, they could have a GI condition that affects absorption, like Crohn's. There are medical conditions that affect metabolism, like thyroid problems. I, I once had a client who was gaining weight and she didn't know why. And it turns out she had a pituitary tumor. Um, newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes, somebody can have a lot of weight loss with that, PCOS. Even, you know, things like cancer, we, we never want to take a weight change um, at face value. We always want to look and see what, what might be going on and to rule out any possible underlying conditions. Medications can also affect somebody's weight in either direction. It can also be a symptom of something emotional going on, anxiety, depression, grief, extreme stress. You know, somebody can be looking after multiple family members who are really relying on them and not have time for the, for themselves. Somebody maybe who really doesn't have time or know how to cook or have resources to be buying a variety of balanced foods. There could be so many things that are going on. So we want to rule it and treat, rule out or treat any medical condition. We want to look at what's going on in the person's life, we never just want to say, oh, you lost weight, gain it. Oh, you gained weight, lose it. We really want to look at it as a symptom of what's going on with this individual. Yeah. And therefore you can address what's actually going on as opposed to just changing their body size. Yeah. You're looking at it as a clue. And then once you work on resolving that issue, then that symptom, which was the weight change should resolve. Yeah. So what happens if someone kind of skips this step and they go straight to putting either the kid or themselves on a restrictive diet? So they either don't feed themselves enough or they say you can't have all these types of foods. What happens? Well, number one, you're you're missing the boat because <laughs> you're ignoring the real problem. Um, but what 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 tends to happen when somebody, whether it's a child or adult, goes on a restrictive diet is that it will probably backfire. And here is why we are not supposed to be good at starving human beings are not supposed to be totally fine with somebody taking our food away because that interferes with survival. If you think of somebody, you know, starving in a desert, the guy who just lies back and, and stares up at the sun, like he's not going to do very well. But the person who's like, food, food, where's food? Where can I get some? Like that's the person who's going to survive. So our survival mechanisms are going to kick in. And this is something that happens on a physical level and on an emotional level. We are wired to seek out food when we don't have enough of it. Now, restriction can be actual caloric restriction, or it can be restriction of types of foods. And whenever you make something off limits, suddenly it just becomes sparkly exciting. Like I'm remembering um, growing up, I had a, a, an aunt and uncle where their counters were always filled with cake and cookies and all, all kinds of delicious baked goods. And my cousins would just kind of like walk by. It was like part of the scenery. They wouldn't even notice it. And we were all like, ooh, cookies. And that's what happens when, when something is just normal. You don't notice it that much. But when it's not something you're exposed to very much, either because it's just not in your environment or because you have voices in your head telling you, you shouldn't be eating those things. Then all of a sudden they become much more salient. Like you notice them much more. So most people will not be able to maintain a diet for an extended period of time because their bodies are working against them. Their minds and their bodies are working against them. And then that can lead to binging, which will cause a person to consume a much larger number of calories than they would if they would just like let themselves have a couple of cookies on an average day. And the other thing that can happen is that even if they can, you know, sustain the diet for 
you know, a, a certain amount of time. Once the binging starts, it usually becomes more regular and more happens more often. And then the person might not just gain back the weight that they lost, but they might even gain back more weight than they did originally. And when somebody is undergoing restriction, their metabolism tries to work with them to make them survive. And so the metabolic rate slows down, which means that the person will burn calories more slowly. And it becomes harder to lose weight again after that weight has been gained back. So simply put, this means that when you try to eat less, you will probably end up eating more, gaining back more weight than you lost and having a a, a slowed metabolism afterwards. So it'll probably blow up in your face. Yeah, probably. Almost a hundred percent. The people who actually have like diagnosed anorexia nervosa, nervosa, it's it's a very small number of people because most people's brains are not wired to be okay with restriction for such a long time. Like it's a pretty unique brain that can sustain that. It's not typical. Yeah. And I also see, and this is again, also anecdotally, but I see that even if it doesn't happen within a day or a week, meaning you restrict during the day or the week and then binge at night or the weekends, it happens over the course of months or years. And so someone who maybe came to me five years ago with anorexia is now struggling with some sort of binging, even though it's years later, the cycle happens. It's just the length of the cycle very exactly. often. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like, well, I've been doing this for three months and nothing happened yet. It probably won't happen. That's not true. You definitely have people who cross over diagnostic categories. I do want to say it can happen in the other direction. Also, you can have somebody who starts off with a, a you know, a more binge type eating disorder and then later on develops anorexia that can, that can happen too. So that's why I feel like it's not so useful to categorize the eating disorders into like such, you know, defined categories because really the underlying psychopathology is is very similar, you know, and it's just kind of coming out in a different way. It can be more based on personality types, you know, the way that the eating disorder manifests. But again, you can definitely switch over categories. Yeah. One thing I did want to mention, I just thought of it when I said the word typical, Um, but there, there is an eating disorder, which we now call atypical anorexia which means that somebody will be doing the same things as, as as someone with anorexia and they'll have the same thought patterns, which means that they are very terrified of fat and they're restricting their intakes. And the difference is that somebody who starts off in a larger body and becomes very restrictive and very afraid of fat, they will lose weight, but on the outside, it might look like, oh, hooray, she went on a successful diet and now she looks amazing. Um, or you know, maybe ends up in a body that's very average looking and not super thin, but really they can be struggling equally as someone with what we might think of as typical anorexia who starts off at a more typical weight or even a lower weight and then ends up looking super, super thin. Atypical anorexia is the exact same thing. It's just that the person started off in a larger body. And so people are much less inclined to take it seriously. Medical providers might be praising them. Certainly people around them might be praising them, but they are just as sick and sometimes even more so as someone with typical anorexia because the the restriction might have gone on for much longer, which means that the effects on the body can be very severe, such as in someone's heart, but 
it can go hidden for longer because they look kind of normal on the outside. So I just wanted to put that out there. Somebody who looks like a successful dieter can actually have anorexia and should be treated as such. Yeah. And really the only reason why the atypical is there, even though it, it really is the same diagnosis is because of the fat phobia that you were talking about, that there's this like general idea of what people think a body should look like and, and the weight stigma that's attached to someone who's being, who, who's in a larger body. Yeah. And there's this great quote by Deborah Gard who says that you can't diagnose in one population what you Oh, I'm going to mess this up now. Uh, you can't diagnose in, in, in one population what you prescribe to another. Yeah. Like oh, yeah, you I love that. two people and one of them, you prescribe a very set of restrictive rules because they're overweight and need to lose weight. But then, you know, the same person, you have another person who's coming in doing the same thing and, and that's a thin person. And you say, oh, boom, eating disorder. Yeah. That's a pretty powerful quote, um, whether or not it's accurate. Just the last few minutes that we have, I wanted to talk a little bit about body image because it's very connected with, you know, relationship with food and restriction. So just from your experience, what are some of the associations that people have with uh, trying to achieve an ideal body image? Like, what are they trying to, to get to by losing all this weight? So I love how Isabel Foxen did put this. She's, I don't know what her exact title is, but I, I would call her like a an anti-diet coach, maybe. But she says that what we're looking for from weight loss is really, it's social currency. We we look at a thin body as a key to, to attaining something or a key to achieving something. So it's not so much the thin body itself. It's what am I going to get from this? What's this going to give me? Is this going to give me compliments or praise? Or do I think it's going to help me get a man or impress other people, you know, what, what, what is this going to do for me? Will it help me get a job? And so it's, it's not so much the thin body. It's what is it going to do for me in my life? If I achieve what I think is the ideal body. And we know this is true because if you look back a few hundred years, it wasn't the thin body that people wanted to achieve. It was a different kind of body. And there are all sorts of, you know, garments and devices that were meant to emphasize certain parts of the body and shrink other parts of the body. The bodies are always, you know, coming in and out of style. And so it's not the body itself. It's what is it going to be the key to for me? And it's very hard to help people internalize the idea that you can't control your body size because then it's like, oh, there goes my hopes and dreams. You know, I, I can't actually make my body to conform to what I think it should look like. This is terrible. Like I was counting on this for love and approval and acceptance and financial security and, and who knows what else. So we're really looking to the body to to solve all of these problems and to give us something that it totally can't give us because at the end of the day, it's just the body. And I don't want to invalidate the experience of people in larger bodies because right now we do live in a world where it is far easier to have a thinner body. It's easier to find clothing and to sit on an airplane. And there are so many practical, but also emotional reasons why somebody might feel like it's really important to have a thinner body. So that's not fake. Like that's a real thing. However, I do believe that a lot of the things that people are looking for from a smaller body are things that they can get without that smaller body. 
There yeah. was a very interesting study done on a group of people after bariatric surgery where they measured their, their levels of, you know, happiness and life satisfaction before and after. And what was really interesting is that the rates of depression after bariatric surgery were surprisingly high. And one of the, you know, the proposed reasons was that these people were putting all their eggs in one basket. It's like, when I have the surgery and when I lose weight, then this thing is going to happen. You know, I'm going to get a better job and I'm going to find a partner. And they, they really put a, a lot of hopes and dreams into it but after the surgery they were still the same person <laughs> maybe their bodies look different but like they still had to pay the bills and they still had you know whatever was going on in their lives before like that was still there afterwards and that was really really disheartening and disappointing and um if i remember correctly i think that um there was a, a surprisingly high incidence of suicide after the bariatric surgery because we, we are really taught, and this comes down a lot to, um, you know, marketing and capitalism, but we're, we're really taught that when you achieve this thinner body, then your life will magically change and all these good things will happen. And a lot of that just simply isn't true. So sometimes what I, I try to do is help people really identify what is it that you're hoping to achieve from a smaller body? What is it that you're hoping will happen? when you lose weight. And then let's try and find ways to get those things now because you actually can't force your body to be smaller. So whatever it is that you're looking for, how about we try and find a way to make that happen now with your body as is. Yeah. Which is obviously a lot harder to do than it is to say and why potentially people kind of channel that through their body because that seems pretty simple. You know, you follow this sort of diet and you do this exercise. Well, the world exercise and... makes it seem very simple. It's like, well, yeah. if that hasn't happened until now, you were just on the wrong diet. Maybe you should try new. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the show and for all of your insights. Dina, where can our listeners find you? So surprisingly enough, I'm not really on social media, but you can find me on my website. It's eatwellsoonrd.com. And um, you can email me as well, eatwellsoon at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to communicate or answer anybody's questions. Yeah. And Dina writes a lot. So you can see her articles probably all over the place. Yeah. I have fun on my blog. I also have a couple <laughs> of great dietitians working with me who write there as well. Perfect. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right, talk next time.